You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. So good to see all of you here this morning, and um, I wanted to thank you. This is my first week back after spending three weeks in East Asia, and wanted to thank all of you for being a part of helping send us there, and we had an incredible trip. It was a great time. We saw God answer many prayers and move in very unique ways. And um, the people and the nation over there is so amazing and so awesome. And there is such an incredible opportunity for us to be engaged and to be a part of what um, very much what God is doing in this world. So Again, to be your representative, to go on your behalf was such an honor with the uh, eight others from um, our body that went. And uh, what we're hoping to do is rather than give you a short two-minute debrief, we'd like to spend an evening. And so we're looking at trying to spend a Sunday evening together here later in the month to give you, to gather our team together and to give you a a far more reaching explanation and description of where we went and the things that we did. We were uh, all together in about um, nine or ten different cities. And uh, again, it was just quite a remarkable trip, and we want to tell you more about it and uh, and explore ways in the future where um, you may be able to be more involved in that. So so look for announcement next, next Sunday on that. Well, summer is almost over. It's speeding by, but we are still in the throes here of Linworth of wedding season. Some of you are going to weddings every weekend, some multiple on a weekend. And um, I love the wedding vows. That is the best part, is the exchanging of vows. But could you ever imagine wedding vows being given based on terms? Hmm? Something like, uh, I'll love you on Tuesdays and Fridays. The other days, I will not be available to you as I will be with friends or eating with my parents or working overtime. I cannot promise that you will be my first love, but certainly you will be in the top five. Now, marriage wouldn't work that well like that, though sadly, practically, that's often how it does work out. But we would never say that in our vows, right? And ironically... We do the same thing with God. We come to Him, but it's often with terms. You know, I look back on periods of my Christian life, and I look back with some discomfort. There were seasons where I settled into a polite, a comfortable obedience. I would not have admitted it at the time, just like we would never state our true intentions at a wedding ceremony, but essentially I was defining terms with God. God, I'll make you a part of my life here and here and here. These are the areas where I like your involvement. They are doable for me, and I see tangible gain from your involvement. But otherwise, my life is my own to choose what to do with. My heart in certain areas is mine, and God, it is closed off to you. There's definitely been seasons of my life 
Well, that's been the way that I've related to God. Some of you may have read the book called Eat, Pray, Love. Okay? Or you may have seen the movie featuring Julia Roberts uh, called Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia. Now, the book had an extraordinary run on the New York Times bestsellers list, 187 weeks. Unimaginable. Incredible. This is a story of one woman's spiritual odyssey. And uh, Ross Douthat, who is an award-winning journalist for New York Times, writes about Elizabeth Gilbert's spiritual quest. He writes that it all began with the dark night of her soul. And she fell on her knees in prayer, frustrated with what her life had become. She had everything she wanted. The only problem was she did not want it anymore. Culturally, she was some sort of a Christian. But theologically, she could not swallow the one fixed rule of Christianity. That Christ is the only pathway to God. And so she addressed the divine that night using Christian terminology, but with a more open-ended attitude towards who might be listening. Her prayer was simple enough, a litany repeated deep into the night, pleading for deliverance from the vows she had taken and the life she had planned. Her prayer was, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to live in this house. I don't want to have this baby. And she would that night hear a voice and answer and that answer would set her off on the quest on which the book and the movie describe. Gilbert had one foot in the Christian faith but her other foot had moved far from historic Christianity into a kind of homespun religion drawing from several spiritual sources and piecing them together in a way that made perfect sense to her and conveniently justified her divorce and abandoned her past life. God was not a holy other that she approached with fear and trembling, saying, what can I do, God, to know and to please you? But rather, the concept of God was a construct in her mind. In order to make sense of her life, and in the end, to justify the things that she wanted to do. Now, question. Do you see the connection between my story and hers? Because they are connected. Now, I never abandoned beliefs in historic Christianity, but when I, or when you, place terms on your relationship with God, how much he can have of us, then we are doing something very similar to Elizabeth Gilbert in Eat, Pray, and Love. We are saying there is a part of my life that belongs to me. And I do not need God's revelation in those areas. I can spin my own thoughts together to make my life work. A little bit of Christianity, a little bit of this, a dash of that, makes sense to me. Makes my life work. And that's how I relate to God. Now, we might call this a 
renegade religion, as one commentator puts it. And in our last section of Judges here today and next week, this is where things have devolved to. There's God language. His name is spoken. His blessing is sought. But there is a hollowness that marks the lives of those that say they know him. So let's take a moment and stop and pray. Let's invite God to speak to us, not me, and give us open ears to hear this morning. Father, we're going to open your word this morning, and we open it with fear and with trembling, because God, you are holy, and you are other. You are amazing. We come wanting God to know you, wanting to understand more about you, and need you, Father, to reveal yourself to us, and to expose, Lord, the cracks in our lives, we're, we're only religious, where we're hollow, where we're empty, that God, you might fill us again. So speak, Lord. Let us hear. If there's anything, Father, that I say that's not of you, just remove it, please. And please retain all the things, God, that come from you. And through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in Judges chapter 17. If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, it is page 216. All right. We're going to meet three different people today. A man named Micah, a priest, and a tribe, tribe of Dan. First, a man named Micah. Micah lived in a place called the hill country of Ephraim. It was famous in Israel. It was the first place that Abraham had journeyed. There were famous battles fought there. Now Micah, neither a terribly good nor a terribly bad person. On the positive side of the ledger, he's a spiritual leader. And he wants God's approval. On the negative side, he's a man who treats God's commands very, very casually. Let's meet him here in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, Mom, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. There's your first impression. Not a very good one. He admits he stole his mother's silver. This is a large amount, by the way. His admission comes without apology, without remorse, or examination of the heart. He is motivated by what? The fear of that curse that his mother uttered. And so he he fesses up. Now, if this is not a good first impression, take a look at verse 2. And uh, it doesn't get any better. Verse 2, his mother says this, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Hmm. Just a few verses in, and we can already feel a little dysfunction. There's no confrontation. 
There's no request for an explanation, explanation, no accountability. Son, you're perfectly okay with me and perfectly okay with God. Parents, please take a note here that judgment and over and over critical spirit can hurt a child, but so can permissiveness and the failure to discipline. Look at verse 4. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved and metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, not quite all of it, and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. These are images meant to inspire worship. They are not crafted with evil intent. Yet, the carved and metal images are expressly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Why? Why? Here's the reason why God forbids making these images. Because when they or when we make an image of God, they inevitably focused on one characteristic while concealing or while diminishing another. You see, when we make images of God, we picture Him through our needs. Or we picture Him through the prevailing cultural biases of the days that we live in. Human attempts to depict God make Him so tame. How do you picture God in an object? Smiling? Happy? Grandfatherly? Accepting all? Or do you picture Him as prepared to judge sin and injustice and wrathful? Or do you picture God as transcendent, far above us, um, incomprehensible? Or do you picture Him as near to us, relatable, more like us. We quickly see that God does not neatly fit into our categories. Why? Because the Christian faith is not something we create, but rather we discover it through what God reveals to us. And while we may struggle to piece it all together in our minds, the Bible paints a consistent picture of who God is and requires us to worship Him as He is. Tim Keller says this, In modern terms, it is the refusal to let God be Himself in our lives. We filter out things about God that our heart can't accept. In some ways, this is the main sin of our time. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that, or I like to think of God as this or that. That is worshiping God through the work of our own hands. And we can do this without fashioning a physical image. Close quote. 
What is your picture of God? Is it painted with the colors of cultural bias? Is it painted with the colors of what your heart wants to be true? Or is it painted with the colors of what God has revealed about Himself, even though sometimes it confronts us or confronts our culture? Those are really good questions, aren't they? In some ways, we could just stop right here this morning. Those are really good questions for you to think about. I encourage you to, this week, with your spouse or a friend or in your life group, interact on those questions. Okay? Let's read on for now. Let's meet the second part, the second character here in our story. Verse 5, Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household good gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Actually, let me comment on this scripture before we meet the second character. It's important that you see here what Mike is doing. Do you see what he's doing? He's establishing his own place of worship. This is his homemade religion. He's spinning together what he wants. You see, in the formational days of Israel during the time of Moses, God established one place of worship, the tabernacle, where his presence dwelt. And right now that is resting in the city of Shiloh. And also, not everybody could become a priest. In order to be a priest in this Old Testament era, one had to be born of the tribe of Levi. And this helped God to protect what was sacred and not let it become common or ordinary or profane. Micah abandons all of that, setting up his own shrine, choosing his own priests. And what does the writer say about this? The writer does not want you to be fooled by Micah's bold initiatives. The writer comments that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Without that overarching spiritual leadership, without that moral center, each one makes up the rules as they go. Each one makes up the rules that they want. This is Micah. Here's our second character a Levite priest comes into the story. Look at verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem of Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. He's a wanderer. And as he journeyed, he came up to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father or a spiritual advisor and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons." Okay, Micah sees a golden opportunity here. Son, you don't quite fit. I remember, hey, this guy could be our priest. This guy could be our priest. And in verse 12 he says, And Micah ordained the Levite. Micah ordained him. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Hmm. He stepped up his game. 
Now, this young priest is a mixture. Again, on one hand, because of the family he belongs to, he wants to serve in the right place. But you know, he could have traveled a little further north to Shiloh, where the real tabernacle was. He could have gone there, but he got bent sideways, didn't he? He got distracted by an attractive offer. He jumps at his first opportunity to make a living. Stop this wandering around. Even though all of his training would have worked against serving at this rival private shrine. Again, Micah had taken what was sacred and set apart and made it common and made it ordinary. And this priest would have had to have known that. For Micah's part, hey, now my homespun religion seems a little more authentic since I've got a Levite priest on my side. Now that I've got the real priest, I have pushed all the right buttons. And surely God will prosper me. Surely God will make me rich and comfortable with him on my side. And again, chapter 18, verse 1, all the author can do is just shake his head and say, and say again, everybody, everybody does. There's no king in Israel. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. This shows us the difference between religion, what religion is, and what the gospel is, which is received by faith and The master of discerning between those two, Tim Keller, says this. What do we do in religion? In religion, we put forth effort to access God's heart in order to get what we want. It's not the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel gospel is that God gives us access to his heart. Why? Why? So that he can get us to do what he wants. That's the difference. And that's the change that Micah had never undergone. It's still religion to him. God is still a way to get what he really wants in life. And again, it's a great time to pause and ask ourselves that question. I mean, what do I really want out of life? I mean, what do I really want? Is God... A means? Or is God the end? That's the question. All right, third, the tribe of Dan. The third character in our story. The Danites. Please forgive me, anybody named Dan out here this morning. I know we have a few Dans. i got a son named Dan. Unfortunately, your tribal forefathers uh, will not leave you much to be proud of. Now, we can't read this entire chapter, but we'll focus on some important highlights. For background, you must realize this, that the tribe of Dan was the only one of the 12 tribes that did not have a special land apportionment. Why? Because they blew it. Go back to chapter 1. The tribe of Dan did not listen to God. They did not help their brothers. They did not obey God. And so they were without land. They were a forgotten tribe, living a semi-nomadic existence, always on the lookout for a place to settle, a place to plant and grow crops. 
There was a frustrated existence. And so in, in despair, in despair, they are unwilling to wait on God and his provision and truly trust him. So they rather take matters into their own hands. And what do they do? They go to the past and they try to squeeze the past into the present. Here's what they do. Just like Moses had done. Remember when Moses sent spies into the promised land? Well, the men of Dan do the same thing. They have spied out. They think there's land, this land way up north on the northern reaches of Israel that might be good. And so they send up five of their leaders to go spy out that land. So they head north from Jerusalem. And if we had a map out here, you would see to go to where they were heading from Jerusalem. Guess where they had to go through? They had to go through the hill country of Ephraim. And this is where our characters all come together now. The spies camping out, and they are camping out near Micah's home. And when they are near Micah's home, they hear a surprising, familiar voice. Let's pick it up in verse, verse uh, I think it's verse 3. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I become his priest. And they said to him, Oh, 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 inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey in which you go is under the eye of the Lord. What in the world is going on here? Well, they know this priest. And all of a sudden, the surprising appearance of this priest affords them the opportunity to attach God's blessing on their scouting trip. What could be better? You see, they have a homemade religion. The priest has a homemade religion. And so they're blind to the fact that this is a restless, rogue priest who is easily bought. This priest wears the garments of a man with access to God's heart, but has no connection, no real connection to him. He will tell them whatever they want to hear. For the five spies of Dan... As they pursue God's formal blessing, that gave them comfort. You know, it was a bridge to our past. We remember way, way, way back when, when God used to give a blessing and how warm and fuzzy and sentimental we felt then. We want to have that same feeling again. Well, there's no doubt, as we'll see, as this story unfolds, had the priest answered no to them, that would not have turned them aside. They were not truly seeking the blessing or the counsel. They were seeking the blessing of God, but they were not seeking the counsel of God at all. So what after what must seem the magical moment, we had this, guys, we had this magical moment. We met this priest, and he affirmed our cause. The spies venture forward, and they find the land to their liking way up north. And in verses 7 through 10, the people and the land are described. The people are said to be quiet, 
quiet, not militaristic and unsuspecting. And that they're on their own. They're vulnerable militarily. And the land is described as spacious and prosperous and teeming with resources. This is what they want. And because it is what they want and because they are faintly religious, they slap God's approval on it in verse 10. So verse 11 says, 600 armed men of the Danites set out. And as they passed through Micah's house, oh, the spies said, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. A light went off. Hey, this is Micah's house. He's got lots of like household idols and ephods and all these metal and, and carved images. We're setting up a new land. We'll have our new place of worship. We could use these idols for our own. Look at what happens in verse 17. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods and the metal metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed men with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, Hey! Time out! What are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us to be a father and a priest. Hey, is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. (laughs) He took the ephod and the household goods and the carved image and went along with the Danites. Oh, man. There are just so many things wrong here. For the men of Dan, what is it? It's might makes right. We have the power. We want this. So shut up. And to the priest. Oh, by the way, why don't you come and serve as our priest? Why serve this little church when you can have a big one? The priest who was formerly unemployed is just reached. He's dizzied with his new success. And he goes with them. This was a state of spiritual leadership in Israel. It's what the writer wants us to see. He's already proven he will tell them what they want to hear. He will sell himself to the highest bidder. This is the condition of the spiritual leadership of this country. Now, tragically, the story's not over. And we can't leave this until we finish the story. And as I told you way, way back in week one... There will be times when the people of God, this book is going to make us wince. And this is one of them. We're going to be embarrassed and hurt. So Micah returns to his priest. Or Micah Micah goes back to his house. He finds the shrine is gone. He rustles up some neighbors. He tracks down the men of Dan and confronts them. But remember, the currency of this culture is power, not right and wrong. There's no rule of law. It's whoever has the biggest stick wins. And in verses 25 and 26, the men of Dan basically tell Micah, you know, we appreciate your appeals, but uh, go home because we're bigger than you. And that leads us then to uh, the most tragic part of this story. Let me, before I read the next scripture again, let me just set this up so that we completely understand the context here. 
Again, if you're following along, you're picking up that the men of Dan wrongly believe that God is behind their military conquest. You know, from their part, they're thinking, hey, where we failed in the past, now we're going to succeed. You know, they got good reports back from the spies. These people are vulnerable. They got confirmation from a Levitical priest, for goodness sake. And we have these religious relics. And these relics have images of God that approve our conquest, our power. But they've not been humbled towards God. God is not much more than a name to them. They are in no real position to hear his voice. And look at the folks, how they're described. Quiet and unsuspecting, peaceful. You remember who the people were that God uh, brought judgment on through these military conquests? When the Israelites first took the promised land, remember they were the Amorites, the Amalekites, Remember how we described how they were so wicked and so evil? Child sacrifice was their favorite recreational activity. And God had given them repeated warnings after hundreds of years. And there were repeated rejections time after time, generation after generation, century after century. And finally a gracious God, finally a gracious God brings judgment on them. But he uses the natural means of Israel. It's a very strict, very limited, once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-world's history. Never to be repeated. But that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. Look at verse 27 now. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city, and they lived in it. They got what they wanted. The men of Dan got what they wanted. Might makes right. That was the currency of this renegade religion. You know, they gained the whole world. But you know what they did? They forfeited their souls. How do we know that? You can look at this later in Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. There, the tribes of Israel that will be in glory with God are listed representative number from every tribe who will be with God in glory. Oh, except, wait, there's one tribe not there. There's one tribe missing. The tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. Well, there's one more twist yet to this sad story that I can't, I can't mention. Because if you read on, you're going to see it and you're going to comment on it. Look at verse 30. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses... And his priests 
And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. The author decides to drop a bombshell on us at the very end. This unnamed priest, his name is Jonathan. And who is he a descendant of? He's a descendant of Moses. Now, this is a proof again that God has no grandchildren. This is a reminder that faith must be individually passed on and owned from generation to generation. Faith is not an automatic right or entitlement gained simply through church attendance or godly parents. And parents, parents, if you have sought to raise your children to know God, and if they have embraced that faith for themselves, my goodness, rejoice in that. But recognize, it was primarily a work of the Holy Spirit. Be careful not to overcredit your participation in what God has done. Conversely, if you have sought to impart your faith to your children to know God, and they do not actively follow Him, be careful not to overcriticize your failures. For their coming to faith is primarily a work of the Holy Spirit. What I am amazed at after nearly three decades of raising my own children and seeing the long trajectory of many other Christian families is that God's grace plays a much larger role than we realize. And what we call Christian parents, successful parenting, differs from family to family. Parents, this is not an excuse to be passive or lazy. You are often the main agents that God will use. But just do not lose sight of their free will, nor the importance of God's grace. Micah, the priest, or Micah, the priest who is now named in the Danites, taken together, they paint a picture of what a renegade religion is like. A religion developed to suit our needs. Renegade religion becomes hollow. There is a facade of meaning. There is spiritual language. There may be even glory from the past. But it's all empty inside. Three things renegade religion does. Number one, Renegade religion makes God's God small. It makes God small. It limits his vast resources. It formalizes God. It keeps God at a distance. It keeps him sir or holy God or God we come to you. It keeps him sir rather than father. It keeps us cogs in a wheel rather than sons or daughters. It turns the delight of a relationship into a faceless duty. And and renegade religion renders it impossible for God to ever emotionally satisfy you. He's too small. He's too limited. Secondly, renegade religion always proves unethical. Without the holiness of God, 
what do we find? We find that our wrong desires will carry the day. And we will compromise in order to gain power. We will compromise in order to gain status. We will compromise in order to gain wealth, just like that priest. And thirdly, in renegade religion, note this, it is the weak and the vulnerable that suffer. It's always the case. It's always, 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 always the case. When there's renegade religion, it's a universal rule. This will never not happen. Renegade religion is always the weak and the vulnerable that suffer. We see that happening in our own culture today. It's always that case. Because the quest for power turns into the quest for pleasure, and it will remove whoever keeps me from my gratification. And when we can get governments and authorities to back that, then you've got the power of not a transcendent law, but you have the power of might makes right. James 1.27 says what? What does true religion do? What is true religion? True religion cares for widows and orphans. True religion will always, always, always protect the weak and the vulnerable. If it is not protecting the weak and the vulnerable, it is not true religion. And secondly, true religion is not polluted by the world. It does not buy into the world's values of wealth, status, and comfort first. Practically this morning, what can we do? What can we do this morning? But my appeal, our appeal, the Lord's appeal to you this morning is to come to the table of God this morning. To receive the bread, to receive the wine. To come to the table this morning without terms. And to receive all that God has revealed to us. To allow God to be himself. To allow God to be God. And to come to him with all that we are. Not 70%, not 80%, not 90%. But to say, God, I am all yours. You are all mine. When When we receive the bread and when we receive the juice, the wine of God's love, that's what we're saying. We are renewing the covenant. The promise, we begin with the promise God made to us, and then we respond by promising back to him, God, I am yours. I'm in this to the end, God. I'm in it all of me. I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to have to get back up on my feet. I know I'll need to be renewed. I know I'm going to blow it. But God, I'm all yours. I'm all in, God. I'm all in. I want to know you. I want you to be more than just a name. I'm never going to be content with something hollow, shallow, fake, facade. I want you to be real and alive to me every day of my life. And we take the bread and the wine. That's what we're saying. God, we want. We don't escape our human frailty. We don't escape our humanness in this. But we express to God, we commit to him. We receive again his forgiveness. We renew our love for him in the taking of the wine and the taking 
of the bread. Let's pray. Father, the relevance of these stories amazes us. They speak, but they also wreck us. Father, they wreck our self-righteousness. They destroy us. The little castles that we make, the little kingdoms that we make, by which we hope to be self-justified before you, by which we try to control and protect our lives, by which we try to gratify, to gratify ourselves. The little kingdoms that we build, God. Father, Father, we come before you just simply for who we are. We know you bid us to come, not, to be, not in our perfection, but you bid us to come in our weakness. You bid us to come as we are, knowing that Christ Jesus loves us. We remember, Father, there's nothing that we could ever do to make up or to compensate or to atone or to justify our sin. There's not a single thing. Lord, we couldn't cry enough tears to prove that we were genuine. Father, all we can do is receive the promise that you give us through Jesus Christ of life, of forgiveness, and to rest, to sit down, to wait on him. Father, lead us now in a time of confession. Lead us in a time of repentance. Lead us in a time of renewing our covenant and renewing our forgiveness. Remembering you, remembering Jesus, seeing Jesus. Who gave his life without any compromise. To die in exchange for us who find compromise so easy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.